Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. The Bible says, Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Because they repented not. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before your presence this morning, not upon any merit of our own, for Lord, we are most unworthy. Yet we come before thy presence on the merits of Jesus Christ, who alone has made us accepted. And Father, we pray that you would not only hear our prayers and our praise, we pray most of all that you would speak to us from thy word this morning. Lord, uh, perilous times have always been upon the church, yet these days we live in today have become most perilous. And Lord, it just appears as we look around that the church is beginning to change. It's beginning to change the message of the gospel. It's beginning to have and possess a sinful tolerance. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Father, Lord God, to hear from you this morning. Help us to hear from the words of Christ, and may we be encouraged and exhorted by them to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as you have proclaimed it in thy word. We pray, dear God, that you would be with those flyers that was mailed out. Father, we pray that you would speak to the hearts of men, women, and children. We pray that, Father, people would see their need of Christ, acknowledge their sins, and find repentance. Dear God, we pray that you would help us this morning to understand the significance and importance of repentance in the place of the gospel. And we pray that, Lord, you'd help us as we preach it, that, Lord, we would make it loud and clear the urgent need and commandment of all men to repent. Father, we love you and we thank you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know about some of you, but over the course of the last 40 years as a Christian, I have seen a change within the ranks of God's people and also with the message of the gospel. It's been a slow and subtle change. That's why I believe many young believers today are ignorant of it, Satan makes changes slowly and subtly, like sin. Sin is something that slowly hardens our hearts if we're not careful. Deception is the same way. In some things, changes are good. But when it regards the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must not seek to change anything God has proclaimed or commanded from His Word, regardless of the culture we live in, regardless of the times in which we live in. But there has been a subtle change over the last 40 years. And I believe in many ways the gospel has been changed. I believe it has been corrupted by man's opinion. And in many places, 
what they profess to be the gospel is not the gospel. And I believe it's made men and women twofold children of hell rather than children of God. We have recorded in these words of Christ some of the strongest exhortations of reproof which ever Christ spoke as He walked amongst men. For Christ and for Scripture, it's no small matter for a person or a nation to slight or reject the great mercies and grace of God in Christ Jesus. Christ said, He began, or the Word of God says, Christ began to abrade the cities wherein most of His mighty works were done because they repented not. You know, the greatest punishment from God awaits those, and we read it or sang it in that psalm, those who forget God. All the wicked shall be turned into hell, or the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. It is no small matter when God reveals His mercy and His grace to a person or a nation, and they reject and deny it. Even though we understand the doctrine of divine election, and even though we understand that it is God who must draw men unto Christ, God's Word still holds sinful man responsible for his own sins. As in our text. And when God reveals Himself to a person or a nation, and they reject and deny Him, great judgment awaits that person or that nation. Something I want to get further into next week as He goes into these woes. And when Christ cries out, woe, that is an extreme judgment, is waiting you. And I fear America stands under one of these woes of Christ, for we have been blessed over the years with the preaching of the gospel, with the printing of Bibles, with the liberty we've had to preach and worship Christ. And now look what this nation is doing to the things of God and to the Word of God. I fear our nation stands under the woes of which Christ speaks. Something I wish to address next week. But this morning I wish to merely lay down the foundation of which Christ here emphasizes His abrasion, this reproach that He has for them. He says here in verse 20, Then began He to upbraid the cities wherein most of His mighty works were done because they repented not. I don't see how one can not see the depth of sinful man's depravity in these verses. For even the mighty works of Christ could not move their sinful hearts to repentance. Consider these words, dearly beloved, as Christians who have, be, 
who have received the Spirit of God for enlightenment and understands and knows the things of God revealed to us by the Spirit of God. This is not merely a prophet. It's not merely uh, an apostle performing miracles. Here's the very Son of God who's done many mighty works, and yet it moved not the heart of these cities to repent. What depth of depravity has man fallen into? That even the mighty works of the Son of God Himself cannot move a nation or a city to repent. I'm so confounded by people who do not believe in the total depravity of man. Many today seek miracles and signs and wonders. Yet here was the Son of God Himself. God manifested in the flesh Himself doing mighty works, yet still they repented not. Beloved, nothing but a divine work of grace upon the heart could ever move a heart to true repentance. Listen to me. This is, a, this is something very important for us to grasp, especially if we want to preach the gospel in its entirety, because repentance is a vital part of the gospel. A call, a command that men everywhere ought to repent is a vital part of the gospel, regardless of the doctrine of election. It is God's foreordained, planned, sovereign will that we preach repentance. We know that it takes a divine work of grace upon the heart because even the mighty works of God can't change the heart without a divine work working upon the heart. Isn't this amazing here, Christ saying this? I've done outwardly great works, mighty works. I've caused the blind to see. I've raised Jairus' daughter. In Capernaum, all the miracles he did. Look at all the things he did. The woman with the blood issue was all in this area. He, did, he said, I've done some mighty works amongst you. Mighty works, the Son of God. Outward works. Yet without an inward work of divine grace, even the mighty works of the Son of God cannot turn a depravity or depraved heart to Christ. Are we listening to the words of Christ? You say you're limiting God. No, Christ is making a statement here. He's making a fact known, a divine truth, that even if the Son of God does a miracle before your eyes, with that divine work of grace in your heart, you shall not repent. Amazing when you think about that. Not even the mighty works of Christ Himself could move these cities to repentance. You remember John 6, he said, Ye have seen me, and believe not. It's not the outward works. It's not the outward effects. It has to be an inward, divine work of grace. Christ is declaring an amazing truth here, dearly beloved, that you and I must understand and grasp at least a little bit. And I wish a lot of these charismatic churches that are looking for signs and wonders would grasp this truth. It's not outward signs or works or wonders or miracles that can change the heart. It's only an inward work of divine grace upon the heart. Oh, the depth of man's depravity. Do you see it? Do you grasp it? 
strive to enter in at the straight great straight gate, our Lord said, for many shall seek to enter in, but shall not be able to. Let me tell tell you something. Repentance is a hard thing for the sinner. He cannot do it on his own without a divine work of grace. He'll never see his need to repent. And yet we are called on by God to preach the gospel and command every man everywhere to repent. It's a divine commandment. Whether they're able to do it on their own or not, and we know they're not, we're still called on in the gospel to call every man unto repentance. And Christ proves that here. I'm getting ahead of myself, but a few verses later, he talks about the Father's election. You can't know it. Know the Father unless you know me, and I won't. Nobody can know the Father unless I reveal it to him, and he's hidden it from the wise. He, he says and speaks about and thanks God for divine election, yet it doesn't stop him from reproving these cities for not repenting. Isn't that amazing? And yet you hear some of these foolish, vain believers who embrace the doctrine of divine election, who foolishly say it's sinful to make an invitation. It's sinful to make an offer of the gospel. Here's the Son of God, the very Son of God, who reproves these cities for not repenting, even though He Himself knew that they could of themselves not repent. He still severely reproves them for not repenting. Man thinks he's got to understand everything about God. He thinks he's got to be able to put him in a box and logically and reasonably define everything that God does. Let me tell you something. One of the greatest mysteries, listen to me, one of the greatest mysteries of God one of the greatest mysteries of God is how He, how He fulfills His sovereign will in saving souls. That is one of the greatest mysteries. And you and I and many other believers who think that we can contain, that we can comprehend the fullness of that, are fooling ourselves. It's a great mystery. Why does God save people? Why does He save the people He does? Why does He call you and me? Why does He call people and individuals? You can't figure it out. There's no merit in themselves. They have nothing in themselves that would draw them for God to love them. Why does He love them? And we simply say, oh, it's out of His own free will and mercy and grace. And we realize that. But why? We can't fathom that. And yet when we preach the gospel, we think we have the ability to choose whom He'll save, and therefore we don't invite sinners to Christ, because that would be offending His sovereignty. No, it wouldn't, not according to Christ. You preach the gospel. You command men everywhere to repent. That's part of the gospel. And then God chooses to save His elect. I'm getting ahead of myself, but you take repentance away from the gospel, you have no gospel. You have no gospel. Because they repented not. You notice in our text, unlike that of John 6 with the multitude, he said, you believe not. He said, you've seen me and you believe not. He knew who would believe, not believe in him. And who would betray him? If you notice here, he doesn't abrade them for not believing. He abrades them for not repenting. Different, isn't it? You'd think you'd say, you didn't believe me. 
But he didn't say that. He said, because you repented not. You didn't repent. You see the great significance Christ himself places on repentance? These are some of the strongest reproofs Christ ever spoke when he walked amongst men. And it's because they did not repent. The significance that Christ puts on repentance is something the church has lost today in preaching the gospel. There's no urgency in man repenting and turning from his sins and turning to God. There's no urgency of repentance in the gospel anymore. It's simply, you need help. You in trouble? You got health problems? You need money? You're worried? Come to Christ. You'll take care of your problems. Don't worry about repentance. Driving yesterday down Coleman to look for a trim I never did get for my window. It took me years to work on the trim on my window, and I got one trim up. <laughs> didn't get very far. <laughs> I driving down, and I just happened to have the radio on for the uh, Christian I don't know why I listen to it, because it's not very Christian, but one of the Christian radios, and some guys on there just finished singing a song about boogie with Christ. Boogie woogie with Christ. And the guy says, we ought not to judge him for that, because he's a Christian, and we not, we'd be, need not to be so religious. We need to realize people need Christ, and we need to stop being so religious and just kind of just fit in and kind of do anything we can to reach people for Christ. So let's boogie with Christ. That's just one instance of many many churches are going in that same mindset. Let us not be negative about the gospel. Let us not be negative about the sinner, but let us in, in, let us entice them with with entertainment, with music, with seduction. But let's not tell them there's a need for repentance. Even in, in some churches that are basically doctrinally sound, the call to repentance is quiet, still, is few. You look at the infants Christ puts on repentance. The divine purpose Christ declares himself of his doing so many mighty works amongst these people was to bring men to repentance and faith in him that they might be saved. That he, What he says was the divine purpose. He said, I did all these mighty works in your cities and you repented not. I did them that you might repent, have faith in me, and be saved, but you repented not. Oh, I hear the hyper-Calvinists now just screaming in there under their breath. Oh, you can't do that. Christ knew they wouldn't. It's amazing how man tries his best to make his theology fit in the Scripture when it doesn't fit. He, he finds himself contradicting verses. He finds himself trying to excuse God for what he does. Don't excuse him. I like what Martin Luther said in his song, A Mighty Fortress. Let's that's void stand. Give kind dunk to leave the word of God along alone. Don't even put a thought to it. Just let it speak for itself. Here's Christ strongly, severely rebuking these cities because they did not repent, and it is the Son of God who knew that of themselves they could not repent, and yet he severely rebukes them. Why waste his breath? I'm telling you, mankind has 
trouble preaching a gospel that he can't logically and reasonably fit in his theological mindset. But here's Christ reproving these cities. This is the most amazing statement. Because, beloved, Christ was not ignorant nor unaware of their inability on their own to repent. For the Bible says, and we all know, he knoweth the hearts of all men, according to Acts and many other scriptures. Christ was not ignorant of this divine truth. Christ didn't say, there's no word, there's no use me saying anything, because you're not going to be able to repent unless God gives it to you. And he doesn't do that. He severely rebukes them, and then he even goes on to speak about a judgment. It's going to be more tolerable. He even goes to the point, and this is amazing, and I'm going to look at that next week. But he said, had been if these mighty works were done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ash. What an amazing statement. What an amazing statement Christ was saying. If these same works would have been done in these sinful cities, they'd still be here. They would have repented in dust and ashes. What an amazing statement. Fit that into your theological understanding of the divine election and sovereignty of God. Fit that into that that you don't comprehend. He said they would have repented in sackcloth and ash. Oh, he's just making a statement here, just making a comment here. Is he really? This is the Son of God. Is he trying to be deceiving or deceptible here? He's stating a fact. Would he lie? But he said, no, nah, they wouldn't have been able to repent regardless of what's because they weren't elect. No, Christ said they would have repented if they seen the mighty word. Figure that one out. <laughs> I love when God is God and just kind of mystifies finite mind. Figure that one out. I, that, that doesn't fit into my understanding of election and sovereignty of God. It, it doesn't fit. Christ is doing something very contrary here. I can't fit this into my theology. I've got to change something. Oh, oh, the sinfulness of man, the ignorance of man. He not only holds them accountable for not repenting, but like I said, he greatly condemns them. It's going to be more tolerable for these cities in the day of judgment than for you. Look at that. Solomon and Gomorrah were sinful cities. And Christ says, no, because you've seen the mighty works. It's going to be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for you. What an amazing statement. I'm not going to get there yet, but it, it proves that there's degrees of damnation. The more light, the greater the damnation. Which I want to get into next week, especially concerning our, our country, our nation, but also those who have been blessed with sitting under the preaching of God's Word and continue to ignore their need of repentance. It would have been better you'd have never heard the gospel. It would have been better you'd never heard the name of Christ. You do not want to do that because your condemnation will be greater for sinning against divine light. Oh, what a message that is in the gospel. It's Christ here speaking, not some man. It's the Son of God. If I'd have done these mighty works in Tyre and Sidon, they were repented long ago. 
It's going to be more tolerable for them for they, because you did not repent. He holds them accountable. And then he also said you're going to be, have a greater condemnation because of that. Well, wait a minute. Didn't he know that they're incapable of repentance without divine grace? Yes, he did. He still holds them accountable. And not only that, he declares they'll be judged for that. Man tries to fit that in his theology and it doesn't fit. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 55. That's what, what I love about the gospel. This is what it confounds, man. I, I love it. and I, I, Over the years, I've got so tired of theologians, quote-unquote, trying to figure and reconcile this apparent difference or contradiction, and they can't. Because somewhere down the, down the line, you're going to have to contradict Scripture with Scripture, not compare Scripture. You're going to have to ignore a Scripture. Somewhere down the line, you're going to have to say, this Scripture doesn't fit. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And if you don't comprehend it, believe it anyway. Look at Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Watch this. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. It's amazing, isn't it? Seek the Lord while I may be found. I'm telling someone to seek the Lord, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now watch the next verse. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord, as the heavens are higher. What's the reference of? It's the reference is salvation and saving of the wicked. God saying, seek ye the Lord, while he may be found, call upon him, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous his thoughts, let him return unto the Lord, and have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he is abundantly pardoned, for my thoughts are not. The context is, you're not going to understand me when it comes to salvation. I do what I want in salvation. Why do you deny the sovereignty of God in salvation when you profess the sovereignty of God in creation and everything else? Do not deny him his sovereignty in salvation. He saves who he wills, whom he wills, when he wills, how he wills. It's not up to us. Up to us is giving the message. You preach the message the way I give it to you. You know what an ambassador is? Christ says, uh, Paul said we're ambassadors for Christ's sake. You know, and God, and, and we beseech you to be reconciled to God for Christ's sake. You know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is simply somebody who carries a message from one kingdom to another. He's just carrying the message. He's not to change it. He's not to pervert it. He's not to put his own words in it. He's supposed to just carry a message. The message the king gives him, he is supposed to proclaim. Nothing more, nothing less. The message we are to complain is the full gospel. You need to repent and turn from your sins. Well, yeah, but they can't. We need to repent and return from your sins and turn from your sins. This divine truth seems strange to many who embrace the doctrine of divine election, that Christ would so severely abrade those who of themselves were incapable of repenting. Think about that. Their stance, their understanding <laughs> makes no sense to them. This, this makes, to their the it doesn't fit into the theology. It sounds absurd. Why is Christ abrading these people for not repenting when he knows themselves 
that they of themselves could never repent. Why is he abrading them? He's abrading them because he did mighty works and they repented not. He's still holding them responsible and accountable for not repenting, even though he knew and does know that of themselves they can't. What a mystery. Amen? What a mystery. In Germany, we had so much liberty in preaching the gospel to drug addicts and alcoholics and even on the streets of Germany. Because of this great mystery, we wasn't confined by the doctrine of election. We wasn't we didn't hinder ourselves from preaching the gospel freely and openly because we believed in divine election. Without divine assistance, no one could be saved. Without the Father's drawing and people and men learning of, of God, that they could that didn't hinder us from preaching the gospel to anyone and everyone and compelling them to repent of their sins. In fact, it drove us it drove us to preach it more clearly, more loudly, more fervently, more urgently. The struggle within their own hearts and minds to logically and reasonably reconcile such an apparent contradiction drives, I've seen over the years, such people to harshly debate and argue with those who simply believe it to be true. That's all it does. It drives them to simply argue and debate harshly with those who believe it to be true. For though Christ would quickly in the following verses thank the Father for hiding such things from the wise and prudent and revealing them unto babes, verses 25 to 27, yet he still abrades them severely for not repenting. Isn't that amazing? Christ admits, he admits and proves the doctrine of divine election in verses 25. and It's like he just skips from that. He goes from severely upbraiding them to saying, thanks, God, that you hid it from the wise and prudent and revealed it unto babes, and I've revealed you and you revealed me because so you willed it to be so. Right after severely upbraiding these cities. And then when that's finished, <laughs> he comes and makes one of the most glorious... Gracious invitations of all. Come unto me, all ye that labor. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel, beloved. That's the gospel. Are you watching? Are you listening to how Christ proclaimed the gospel? There's a command to repent. There's a testifying of God's saving grace. And then there's that glorious invitation to all God's calling. Come unto me. All ye that are heavy laden. and Heavy laden, he's talking about sin. We'll get into that later on in this text. But he's talking about them who are heavy laden and, and grieved with sin and labor under sin. He's talking about repentance. So he commands repentance, verses 20 to 24. He tells them in verse 25 to 7, salvation of the Lord. And then he makes the glorious invitation, now come unto me. Isn't that the gospel? That's the gospel. You don't end with, you're going to be condemned and go to hell. It's going to be, no, you need to turn to God. You need to repent of your sins. Come unto Christ. If the Spirit of God has made you labor and heavy under your sin, you need to come unto Christ and repent. That's the gospel. 
In the times of this ignorance, Paul said in Acts chapter 17, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Oh, he's talking only about the elect. You see what I mean? How they struggle to fit their theology in it? All men everywhere to repent. I wonder if he means all men. I bet he doesn't mean everywhere. He's got to mean just in those places. No. All men everywhere to repent. Beloved, that's, that's the glorious gospel. <sighs> I wish I could open up my heart, my mind, my memory and let you see some of the brethren in Germany as we stood there amongst all those drug addicts and there was multitudes of them. And those men were preaching the gospel to all men, looking at everyone, hoping and praying that God would convince them of their sins and they'd turn to Christ. There wasn't a look of, well, I hope you're elect and I hope you're the elect. It was, no, I'm telling all of you, all of you, I'm all things to all men that I might save, son, Paul said. That's the liberty of the gospel. You preach it to everyone. That doesn't offend the sovereignty of God in His electing. That's how God chooses to elect. For when that call goes out, the Holy Spirit of God works in those whom God knows, and He draws them unto Him, but He does it through this general calling of the Gospel. He doesn't reveal unto us who... Or when, he simply tells us, you preach it to all men everywhere. That's your job. That's your privilege. That's your honor. You don't change or silence the gospel's call for all men everywhere to repent simply because you cannot intellectually or logically reconcile it according to your own mixed-up theology. But you preach it as it is commanded and declared in Scripture. So the commandment for all men everywhere to repent is a vital part of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a vital part. And when we pass out flyers, even when we prepare our next flyer, let us be sure that there is an urgency in those flyers that men repent and turn of their sins. The repentance, the call to repentance is missing in much many gospel preaching today. There's not a call to repentance. Because many today, though they do not completely remove it from the gospel, they greatly memonize its importance. There's a sinful form of tolerance which has infiltrated many churches today. And I'm seeing this in a lot of young believers who also profess the doctrines of grace. There's a sinful tolerance or deviation from God's Word. Well, you know, as long as there's a trace of God's grace being preached, that church is okay. No, you can't have just a trace. You've got to hold up the whole counsel of God. We're growing up or raising up a generation of Christians today that are sinfully tolerant 
and deviating from God's Word, simply saying, well, as long as they got a little truth, that's okay. No, a little truth makes you more dangerous than a lot of truth. I heard that just recently. One young man says, well, you know, there's churches around here that preach a little bit of the grace. So that's okay. I said, no, it's not okay. You can't just preach a little bit of the truth. You've got to preach the whole counsel of God. And this is the problem. This is that sinful tolerance. This deviation regarding man's urgent need to repent. Because, beloved, the gospel is complete. And I believe it's made ineffectual. Where there's no call for repentance. You have no gospel where there's no call for repentance. You have no gospel. Christ died for your sins. He rose for your justification. He lived so that He might keep the whole law. He went up to heaven so He could save you. Something's missing there. Why did He all do that? Why has all that taken place? That ye repent of your sins and turn to God. We beseech you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled unto God. For He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We beseech you be reconciled. That's two parties at enmity. Reconciled. Repent and turn to God. Lay down your sins and your malice toward God and turn to God. They can't do that with divine, without divine grace. And the divine grace is in the Gospel message. Paul, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> saved from what? From a jailer's job? No, he knew. Saved from sin. He was repenting. That's why Paul simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, or the Lord, told the people in Luke chapter 13 about those who was sinful. and He said, but I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all... Likewise, perish, but except ye repent, ye shall all. You see the significance of it? Lest ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He didn't say, lest ye believe, he said, lest ye repent. You see, there's a significance of repentance. Throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, we see the significance of repentance, that it needs to be declared, it needs to be preached. It's a vital part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not merely that he died and bore our sins and was raised for our justification, but you need to repent because of that. Our Lord said in Luke twenty four forty seven, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached. That's what our Lord said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached, preached in His name among all nations, beginning everywhere, beginning at Jerusalem, among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And that repentance and remission of sins, listen to me, repentance leads to remission of sins. Follow me closely. Where true repentance is lacking, there can be no remission of sins. Yet I want you to understand, it's not, the cause of remission of sins. Repentance is not a cause of the remission of sins. Don't make repentance a work. It's not. It's a work of divine grace. But without it, there can be no remission of sins. Acts says God has granted them repentance. Yes, repentance is a gift of God, but you still need to have repentance. It's not the cause of remission of sins. Christ's blood is. But it leads to remission of sins because of repentance. 
Don't make repentance a work. That song, Rock of Ages, though my tears, though my eyes should be tears, full of tears, and my sorrow no longer, no, that's not enough. Something to that effect. Augustus Top Lady had it right. You can cry you want to. You can repent all you want to. Repentance is not the cause of remission of sins. Repentance is not a work. Repentance is a divine work of grace that leads to remission of sins. You know why we have a lot of professing believers who profess Christ? And they do. They'll profess it loudly and boldly. I work with a lot of them. And yet they still live vehemently, inherently in sin. And it doesn't bother them. They never knew repentance. I'm telling you, repentance is a turning a turning from sin unto Christ. It's a loathing of sin, a loathing of self. It's a confessing of sins, and it's a forsaking of sins. That's why we have so many so-called professing believers who still sin vehemently, inherently, and it doesn't bother them. There was never any repentance. And where there's no repentance, there's no remission of sins. This is why we have so many false believers in churches today, false professions. They never felt the load of sin. They never seen their guilt before God. They've never been aware of their depravity. And therefore, they've never repented. Let me tell you something. When God grants repentance, when repentance enters into the heart of a sinful man, he loathes sin. I'm not saying he's sinless or perfect, but oh, First John said the Spirit of God or the seed is in him that he cannot sin. That's the Spirit of the Holy Ghost. And when a believer sins, oh, that Spirit of God grieves us and we're made to grieve and loathe sin even more. We hate it. We despise it, even though we find ourselves often falling into it. If we sin, oh, he is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Amen. There's a difference. There's a difference. And repentance is where that difference is made. It's a turning away. And that's why we have so many false professors who can live in sin. Remissions of sin is freedom, pardon, deliverance from sin. That's what happens. Freedom, pardon, deliverance from sin. Look at Proverbs 28, and I'm fixing to bring this to a close. Proverbs 28. Proverbs chapter 28. Verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth them shall have mercy. No. Twofold, and whosoever, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh, see, twofold, forsaketh them, get rid of them, walks away from them, shall have mercy. Christ said in our text, he reproves them severely because they did not repent. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You know Chorazin's only mentioned twice in the Scriptures, and both times it's under woes. How'd you like to have your city mentioned in Scripture, but both times it's merely under woes? 
And woe is a reference to coming judgment, severe judgment. Woe! Exclamation point. Woe unto thee! It shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Let me tell you something. Our nation, our nation is in deep, deep, deep trouble. Because there's no other nation in the history of the world that has been granted so much light than America. No other nation in the world has printed more Bibles than America. No other nation in the world has sent out more missionaries than America. And we are following the same steps that Europe did, England did. We are now following that same step. And the judgment of God is coming upon America. It's already on America. But I'm telling you, we are going to be severely judged for that because of what light we had and we rejected it. Not only nations, but also people. It's no small thing to slight God's offers of mercy and grace. It's no slight thing, no small matter. It brings the greatest condemnation. It had been better that she had not known the way of truth than it had tasted of the goodness of things to come and then to turn around back to the world. It better that she never heard the name of Christ a warning that people should take seriously and earnestly. Beloved, when we go out to the streets or when we send out flyers or whatever we do, let us always make sure that a part of that gospel is a call unto all men to repent. Because that's a vital part of the gospel. Repentance. Repentance is a sweet thing. A necessity. If we're going to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that there are so many things in your word that, Father, in our finite minds, we can't grasp. They seem irreconcilable. Yet, Father, we trust in your sovereignty, and we trust in your word, and we trust in your spirit, and we pray and ask you, dear God, that you would help us, as small as we are as a church, to preach the gospel in its entirety. Help us, dear Lord God, we pray that we not be guilty of watering it down or diluting it with man's opinions. Help us, Lord God, to preach it with boldness, with love, with courage, with faith. Father, we pray that, God, you would truly bless those flyers that were sent out in the mail. Lord, we pray that it would lead to open doors, that we might be able to speak of others about the things of Christ. Lord, use us in your service. Help us, dear God, we pray, that we might ever remain faithful and true to thy word. We love you and thank you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.